Good afternoon, I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to today's show. This afternoon, we continue with part two of two, Roswell, New Mexico. Legendary Canadian researcher Stanton Friedman joins us to tell us the story of Roswell in his own words. Stanton Friedman. And he told the story of uh, a nurse, Naomi Self, went in to see her and she told him, get out of here, I don't know how you got in here. She was caught having to help a couple of doctors do an autopsy, I guess, or a dissection of smelly, strange, alien body and she met with him at the officers club the next day he ran the ambulance for the town but also for the base and stuff she told him the story made a drawing for him what the bodies were like and then the next day she was gone supposedly sent to england and supposedly died in a plane crash what did that diagram show what did the bodies look like a short one of the strange things was the upper arm was longer than the lower arm which is not the way it is for us they were skinny four fingers no thumb big heads Big eyes, practically no nose, mouth, no teeth, practically no ears, just holes for ears. A humanoid, I mean, two arms, two legs, and a body. This afternoon, Canadian legend Stanton Friedman, the father of Roswell, right now on Brent Holland. We're speaking with Stanton Friedman, of course. We're discussing Roswell and all the secrecy that surrounds that, of course. Stanton, how many presidents knew the truth about Roswell? That's a very good question. Except for Truman and Eisenhower. And remember, again, and talking about keeping secrets, Truman wasn't even told about the Manhattan Project to develop nuclear weapons until 13 days after he became president. As vice president, he was not informed. He did not have a need to know. He'd been a senator before that. They were passing on the money in the black budget, and he didn't know about it. So Truman, Eisenhower, Eisenhower was chief of staff of the Army when this happened in 47, so I'm certain he knew then, because they had to mobilize resources and so forth. But after that, maybe Kennedy, he'd been in the military and had been in naval intelligence to some extent. But Lyndon Johnson, who knows? Probably the elder George Bush, because he'd been head of the CIA before he became mm-hmm. president. Mm-hmm. Probably knew in that role. But Carl Clinton, Nixon, it's hard to imagine that any of them knew a lot. And, you know, people don't seem to understand. Presidents come and go, their term limits and so forth. Intelligence agencies go on forever. So why would you tell somebody who meets with the press all the time, why does he have a need to know when he could spill the beans just by being careless? They might have been told something like, Mr. President, this is so classified, you're better off not knowing, so you can objectively say you don't know anything about that if somebody asks you. I don't know. And folks, just in case you aren't aware, there is a whole top secret level above the President of the United States, a classification that he is not classified for or she is not classified. 
classified for. And that's Chile. Yeah, if you need, uh, need to know and an appropriate clearance. And as an example of how this works, when I was working on nuclear airplanes, I would look at classified abstracts, and I would see papers done for the nuclear Navy about radiation shielding for Navy reactors. I was interested in radiation shielding for aircraft systems. I had the right clearance, secret restricted data. I had access to that, but I did not have a need to know, and I couldn't get it. Admiral Rickover wouldn't give it to people outside his project. So having a sufficient clearance isn't enough. You have to have the need to know. And people say you can't keep secrets. Well, look at the stealth airplane. $10 billion in 10 years. Lockheed, not some university. $10 billion is a lot of money. So there were a lot of people involved. Secrets can be kept. Well, another example, it's a little different. In England, during World War II, there was a place called Bletchley Park. 12,000 people worked there. Their job was to listen in on German military communications, translate that, decode them, give them information to people who had a strong need to know. You didn't want to spread it around because you didn't want anybody to know you'd broken the code. 12,000 people. Now, there was not one word in public until 25 years after the war. Those people kept the secrets. There, yeah, it's a great example. Uh, there, there was a reason. There was a reason, incidentally, one one of the reasons, anyway, was that there were several countries using the code machines that the Germans had developed, and we didn't want them to know we were reading their mail too. <laughs> <laughs> the Enigma machines, folks. We're talking yeah. with Stanton Friedman. We're about to jump into the sequential story of Roswell. That's right, Roswell. Stanton Friedman, of course, Canadian and American dual citizenship, lives in New Brunswick. Nuclear physicist, he has had top secret clearance. We are going to go into that story momentarily. I just want to tell you where you can pick up more information about Stanton, and that's at the www.brenthollandshow.com. I'm going to put all the links to his website there. Book covers, just click on the book cover. We'll take you right to a place where you can pick up the book online no problem whatsoever now the moment we've all been waiting for without further ado the story of roswell from the father of roswell himself stanton friedman well these poor guys from somewhere ran into some kind of a problem at least the first one we heard about the first one i heard about that jesse marcel told me about and stuff exploded he told me that in our first conversation had to have exploded above the ground because there was no crater and because the wreckage was in small pieces spread out over a large area three quarters of a mile long 300 yards wide little pieces of stuff very strange stuff and nothing conventional he had seen airplane crashes he fought during world war ii he was in the pacific he was the intelligence officer for the only atomic bombing group in the world after all and he sees all this stuff and he found out about it because the rancher a guy named Mac Brazel had found this stuff about July 3rd or so. He'd gone into the little town of Corona on July 5th, make his weekly purchases, and was complaining about the stuff was keeping the sheep from getting to water. They wouldn't cross the debris field. And he hadn't heard anything about saucers. He didn't have electricity. He lived out in the country. He didn't have a radio, you know, or there was no television to worry about and stuff. But the people in Corona had heard about saucers and that there was a reward being offered for pieces of them. Thousands of dollars, which was a lot of money back then. And they all said he ought to go into Roswell. It's about 80 miles away and no road conditions out in the middle of the desert there. And so on Sunday, July 6th, he had gone into town, gone to the sheriff's office. The sheriff, by prearrangement, had called the base when anything significant happened and talked to Major Marcel. He was a duty officer that day, July 6th. Major Marcel talks to his boss, Colonel Blanchard. And 
Blanchard tells him to follow up on it. He goes into the sheriff's office, looks at this stuff. It's weird. Nothing conventional. And the boss says, get one of our counterintelligence corps guys and go out with the guy to see what else is there. Because the rancher had stressed there's a whole field of this stuff. And I want somebody to clean it up, too. They're concerned that counterintelligence score thing was because what spies are out there. After all, the only atomic bombing group in the world wouldn't be surprising if there were spies hiding out in the desert looking over, seeing what's going on. They follow the rancher out. They overnight in their sleeping bag. There's no way to tell anybody back then, where is this place? No GPS coordinates, you know. The next day, they go and see all this stuff fill up their vehicles with it, go on back to town, leaving most of it out there. Jesse stops at home late at night, shows his 11-year-old son, Jesse Jr., some of this strange, very strange stuff. And he remembers it. He sees strange symbols and so forth. The next day, goes into the base, and the boss man, Colonel Blanchard, says, Jesse, take one of our B-29s, and you guys take this stuff to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Stop at our headquarters, 8th Air Force, in Fort Worth, Texas. Captured enemy equipment always went to right field. I mean, that was a standard place to find out about it, so it wasn't unusual to do that. When he got to Fort Worth, Texas, where General Roger Ramey was, Colonel Blanchard's boss, Ramey said, you don't say anything. I'll take care of it. He told the press that it was just a radar reflector, weather balloon combination. Sorry about that, guys, because before they arrived with the stuff, his chief of staff, Colonel Thomas Jefferson Bose, later a retired general when I found him, had taken a call from Ramey's boss, mind you, in Washington acting head of Strategic Air Command, and Colonel DuBose told me, he's in Fort Worth, that he took the call from General uh, McMullen saying, get the press off our back, I don't care how you do it, send some of that stuff up here today with one of your Colonel Couriers, and three, I don't want you ever to say anything about it again, not even with your buddy Roger Ramey. That's an order. Do I need to put it in writing, Colonel? Now, these two guys knew each other, both West Pointers, incidentally. When a two-star general tells a Colonel what to do, he does it. You don't argue about it. The second order that Blanchard had given, incidentally, at the time he told Jess get this stuff out, was to Walter Hout, the base public information officer, put out a press release saying we recovered one of these flying saucers that everybody's been seeing in the last couple of weeks. So the cover story went out four hours after the original story went out. Army captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. The Los Angeles paper, incidentally, had both stories. That one and then General thinks it's radar weather gadget. <laughs> The Air Force put out four explanations. First was flying saucer. Second was radar reflector weather balloon combination. Now, I should stress, these were standard, ordinary weather balloons we're talking about. The ranchers had recovered them. Jesse was familiar with them. Colonel Blanchard was familiar with them. The notion that they couldn't recognize one is absurd. The third explanation, well, really, it was a mogul balloon train. The same standard conventional weather balloons and radar reflectors, about 20 of them tied together with string. Nobody's ever reported that string somehow. And there is no launch of that balloon train that matches the dates. And those balloons, when sitting out in the hot sun of New Mexico, go to ashes in a couple of weeks. Mogul balloon simply doesn't fit. My favorite explanation 
is the fourth one. This came out in 1997 in honor of the 50th anniversary, and the press bought it, even though no rational person would. Remember those stories about bodies? Well, we Air Force guys did our homework. We were dropping crash test dummies all over New Mexico, and that's what people were calling alien bodies. Ha, ha, ha. Turns out there's a little difficulty with that. None were dropped until six years after Roswell. I talked to the man who was in charge of the crash test dummy program, Colonel Madsen, met with him in person, mind you. I don't know why the Air Force didn't. They have his picture from back in the 40s. And he told me, look, Stan, for the test to be meaningful, the dummies had to be the same size and weight as pilots. We're six feet tall, 175 pounds, and they were dressed in an Air Force uniform. How could any rational person mistake that for a four-foot-tall guy with a big head? Uh, it's mind-boggling, but the New York Times bought it. That's all that matters. What well, we run up against, incidentally, and we're still finding new witnesses. Don Schmidt and I each have a witness we're trying to get more information about. I mean, obviously, most of them have died by now. It was 63 years ago, but still, you've got to fight both the security at the other end, in other words, when things happen, and the unwillingness of the press to do its job. Get the facts. Don't buy into some stupid explanation like crash test dummies when 10 minutes worth of investigation would show you that it doesn't make any sense. So I'm waiting for explanation number five. Folks, we're speaking with Stanton Friedman. Stick around. You're going to want to hear this because we're talking about Roswell, the real deal. He is indeed, folks, the father of Roswell. Now, as I've said all along, he's the handsome guy with the glasses and the beard and anything you've ever seen on UFOs. Now, I also want to tell you there is a movie about Stanton's life. And the latest rumor now has it that Steven Spielberg himself will be playing his part because we all know that Steven <laughs> has glasses and a beard already. So they're going to try and, you know, adjust the budget so that George Clooney no longer has to grow the beard. Well, I got people saying you, you better get Richard Dreyfus, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love the reasoning that says, well, if anybody was coming here, they'd have sent us a signal. Sure, they would have. Using 2010 technology, how would they know what our technology was, incidentally? And secondly, Columbus didn't send smoke signals to the natives, as far as I know, anyway, before he came visiting. Well, hey, look, if you can't have fun doing this kind of stuff, you shouldn't be doing it. What's life all about? There you go. You know. There you go. So when we last left off, they were just at the point where they're debating the four different excuses that they'd given. Yeah. Yeah, and there are others who try to attack the people. You know, there are four rules for debunkers. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. If you can't attack the data, attack the people, it's easier. But the public doesn't know. I'm not going to tell them. And do your research by proclamation. Yeah. Investigation is too much trouble. And this applies for any strange phenomena, you know? Most people have heard of Roswell. When I was in Australia or Korea or Turkey, I got asked about Roswell. Rio, I've spoken in 16 countries outside North America. And it's kind of the milestone. I had somebody call me and say, well, I almost didn't call you. I figure you're only in it for the money. Why is that? Well, I see on all these television programs. I don't get paid for them. What do you mean you don't get paid? I mean, I don't get paid. And not should... even Larry King? No, not even Larry King. He doesn't <laughs> even pay for meals. I should tell you folks, too, we don't have a pot uh, to, uh, well, you know, at the Brent Holman Show. So God loves Stanton. He's doing this for free, too. He's certainly not in it for the money, and, and I can attest to that. 
Well, okay. There's more to this story in the sense that there have been other crashes. The same time as Roswell, there was one 100 and some miles west of there in the plains of San Augustine. This other story that I heard up at Bemidji State College, that one was almost intact. Bodies outside it. There was a crash in Aztec, New Mexico in March of 48. A new book will be out by Scott Ramsey. I'm writing the forward for it. It uh, should be out by the end of the year. There have been other crashes, other countries. We don't get much. Virginia happened to be down in Brazil when that story came out. And there there were bodies, beings running around the town and fire department going after them. And it's a long, involved story. Uh, And the Roswell case, again, the significant thing here is this is the most elite military group in the world that's involved. They had nuclear weapons on site. Security level was high. Hand picked officers. You wouldn't expect many of them to be talking. And as I say, Jesse only talked because his name was in the papers that associated him with it. People say, why do all those guys come running to you, Stan? Well, they don't. It took an awful lot of effort to find them and to check things out. Jesse's son, Jesse Jr., is still alive. Would you believe he got called back into the military at age 68? He's a oh. medical doctor a flight surgeon, a helicopter pilot, a colonel in the military. He was called back in at age 68 because they were very short of flight surgeons. And he flew 225 combat hours in Iraq. Now, he was on leave and being interviewed for that Peter Jennings mockumentary. And they didn't bother in the part they showed on the two to mention that he was a doctor, a colonel, a pilot, flight surgeon. You'd think those things would go to credibility, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Is there any physical evidence left over from the craft besides the bodies? And I'm going to ask you where the bodies are, too. Well, I'm sure there's plenty of it, but we don't have it and we don't have access to it. We know one guy, Pappy Henderson, one of the pilots from the base who flew some of the wreckage in a body to Wright Patterson, he held out a piece. World War II veterans, incidentally, and he flew 50 missions in World War II, were known for taking souvenirs. (laughs) And he had a piece that he showed to somebody else, a doctor. John Kromschroeder, who came forward after the Unsolved Mysteries program was on. I had found Sappho Henderson, Pappy's wife, and she told his story. And after the program was run with its 28 million viewers, John contacted her and said that Pappy had handed him a piece of the material, which he gave back, unfortunately. So I'm sure there were some pieces out there, but people who think there's no way the government could hide such stuff just haven't been to all these installations that have high-level security clearances. The nuclear weapons labs. There's underground bases not only at Area 51, but in Alamogordo, where the stealth fighters were based, all over the place, places that you don't have access to. And one reason, incidentally, for keeping pieces and the hunks of bodies is our analytical techniques change and improve Mm -hmm. uh, with time. So you go back to the well. But first, you're measuring parts per million would be very good. Now we're measuring parts per billion. We didn't know about DNA back in 1947. People forget how ignorant we were. Oh, absolutely. Rapidly, things have changed extremely rapidly. I got my comeuppance when talking to college students in Michigan, and I said that going over how much things had changed, computers and stuff. And I said, you know, when I started working in industry, I was using a slide rule. Looked around the class, not even a blink of an eye, and I finally said, any of you know what a slide rule is? Not one of the students did. And that was less than 50 years before. You know, so what are we going to be using 50 years from now? <laughs> you know, that's a very good point. What were some of 
the rumors around the artifacts that were taken, I know for a fact uh, that some of the rumors were some kind of tinfoil that when you crunch it up, re-expands and takes on its original form. Memory metal, yes. Ah, uh, yeah. The rancher's son described it. The rancher had told somebody about it. You squeeze it and it crinkles up and then you let it go and it uncrinkles. And we've made some memory metals since that time, Nightnall uh, and a couple of others, but there was nothing at that time like that. Very high strength, couldn't cut it, burn it, clip it, but with this crazy capability. And there were other I-beam-like pieces, a small three-eighths inch high maybe, which had strange symbols along the sides. And they had the weight of balsa wood. They weren't balsa wood, but they had the weight of balsa wood, which everybody uses as standard back then because kids made balsa wood airplanes, model airplanes and stuff. Extremely high strength, couldn't cut them, burn them, break them, but weighed almost nothing. That's not surprising if you got a high-performance aircraft that you're making out of something that's light and strong, and we would sure like to be able to do that. And sometimes you use the same elements we have, but maybe you make it under high pressure. Maybe you make it at very cold temperatures. Maybe you impregnate it with molecules of something else to make it peculiar. Who knows? I mean, if you look at our materials and look how much change and difference there's been over the last 60 years, it wouldn't be surprising if an advanced civilization made stuff and forms and by methods about which we know nothing. We're ignorant. Any possibilities of back engineering captured alien technology? That we have back engineered alien technology? Mm -hmm. Of course it's possible. Hey look, that back engineering isn't a new idea. During World War II we'd grab a German fighter that hadn't blown up, that landed or crashed. They would grab one of ours and they'd make measurements on the materials that were used and the tolerances and oh, I wonder what this is. And we tried to learn as much. After the war, there were thousands of German aviation related documents and rocket documents that were brought over to Wright Field and translated and somebody estimated they saved us 15 million dollars in research to have access to what they had done. Operation Paperclip. Well, that was part of it. Yeah, that was part of it. But there was more to it than that. Those were the scientists. This was the paper. <laughs> Why are the aliens visiting us at this juncture in time? Well, I don't know. In one of my books, I have 22 reasons for visiting Earth. I make one assumption about every advanced civilization. It's concerned about its own survival and security. That means you got to keep tabs on the primitives in the neighborhood, but only close tabs that show on those civilizations that show signs of being able to bond you. At the end of World War II, there were three signs that soon these idiot earthlings, this primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. We only killed 50 million of our own kind during the war. We destroyed 1,700 cities. Not nice guys. There were three signs that said pretty soon they'd be out to bother us. Pretty soon, meaning 100 years, which is nothing on a cosmic time scale. The three signs were nuclear weapons, powerful V-2 rocket, which were being used to bomb England, not to send the mail from Germany, and powerful radar, which was the beginning of the electronics age. There was no radar before the war. Isn't it amazing? The only place in the whole world in July 1947 where it could study all three of these was southeastern New Mexico. Trinity site, where the first atom bomb was tested, is on the grounds of the White Sands Missile Range, which is where the V-2s were being tested, and where we had our best radar to track the rockets, because uh, I hate to admit it, but sometimes they went south instead of north. What happened? I remember there was stories about a nurse seeing the bodies in Roswell, and then 
Yes. Uh, something about an undertaker being called. They asked for child coffins. Uh, Glenn Dennis. Glenn Dennis told that story. I was the first one he really told it to, and he told the story of uh, a nurse, Naomi Self. And they took an airman into the hospital, and he liked her and went in to see her. And she told him, "Get out of here! I don't know how you got in here." She was caught having to help a couple of doctors do basically an autopsy, I guess, or a dissection of smelly, strange alien body. And she met with him at the officers' club the next day. He ran the ambulance for the town, but also for the base and stuff. She told him the story, made a drawing for him, what the bodies were like, and then the next day she was gone. Supposedly sent to England and supposedly died in a plane crash. What did that diagram show? What did the bodies look like? A short. One of the strange things was the upper arm was longer than the lower arm, which is not the way it is for us. They were skinny, four fingers, no thumb, big heads, big eyes, practically no nose, mouth, and no teeth. Practically no ears, just holes for ears. A humanoid, I mean, two arms, two legs, and a body. We haven't been able to verify her, except that I found a guy who'd been in the uh, medical group, and he, without any prompting from me, I read off the names of the nurses, and he remembered this one, that one, who dated who, and all that sort of stuff. He was young at the time. And he remembered her, and I bit my tongue, and what did she look like? And he told me exactly the same words that Glenn had used. I didn't tell him, he told me. So I think there was such a person. It's one of the many mysteries of this story. Also, wasn't there a body that was supposed to have been alive? Supposedly, one of the bodies from over in the plains of San Augustine was alive and was communicated with for a couple of years at Los Alamos and died. The Undertaker story. I went with Glenn to the undertaking emporium, <laughs> the funeral home, and it was clear he'd been well-respected there. We tried to find his old papers, and it was also clear they'd been dumped by somebody who came after him. Glenn is still alive, but he's in a nursing home, and Alzheimer's is big part of the victories in his 80s. Folks, we are indeed speaking with Stanton Friedman, father of Roswell, and he's just told the story of Roswell in his own words. It doesn't get any more real than that. Stanton Friedman, of course, nuclear physicist, that handsome guy I say all the time with the glasses and the beard and all the UFO documentaries. www.brenthollandshow.com website. You can click on his picture or one of the book covers will take you right to a place where you can get his books and we'll also take you to Stanton's website. Stanton, final question. You are virtually speaking with all the university students in Canada right now as this show is syndicated right across the country through the university network. Also international students around the world as this show also uh, is on the internet. What would you say to them? The world of tomorrow is going to be very different from the world of today. We will find out we're not at the center of the universe. You live in an exciting time. Be prepared to be part of the galactic neighborhood instead of our local provincial neighborhood. I live in Fredericton, know about the provinces. I complain about both governments as a dual citizen perfectly legally. You should grow up wondering, thinking, asking. Don't settle for less than the truth. That is perfect, and I want to thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Also, as a note, folks, Stanton's biography, if you will, will be released in a major Hollywood feature film, and I just got an email. Apparently, it's been updated. Indeed, Arnold Schwarzenegger now will be playing the role of Stanton. <laughs> Great. We'll take nominations and have a vote. <laughs> Thank you, Brent. There you have it, folks. The story of Roswell by the father of Roswell himself, Canadian researcher Stanton Friedman. Wow. Coming up on The Brent Holland Show, Alex Safian joins us to tell us the true story of the Gaza flotilla, and we're going to break down even more myths and lies about Israel. Alex Safian.
there were six ships in this flotilla. Five of them were boarded by Israeli soldiers with no violence whatsoever. It was the sixth ship on which there was close to 100 Turkish extremists, hardcore street fighting type. There's security video from the ship that's showing them preparing weapons to be used against the Israeli soldiers, cutting up iron bars to make them into effective iron clubs, etc. And that was the only ship on which there was violence. Furthermore, that was the only ship on which there was no humanitarian supplies. So one would wonder why would you have a ship with hundreds of people on board with no humanitarian supplies, but with trained street fighters? I think the answer is obvious. They were preparing for exactly what happened. They were preparing to attack the Israeli soldiers and try to disarm them and try to create a violent incident which they could turn to their favor in the PR war, which I think they succeeded at. www.brenthollandshow.com www.brenthollandshow.com If you're doing research and you want the story from the people that were there that went through these tumultuous events, there's the place for you. You get the true historical story from the people that were there in their own words. Decide for yourself. Interpret for yourself. www.brenthollandshow.com. I want to thank you all for joining us for these past two shows. They've been absolutely riveting. Thank you, Stanton Friedman. I'm Brent Holland. Thank you all for listening. See you later. <laughs>